Thanks, Mark. We know our treasurer is praying when he prays for the balance of the worship service. The next reading of Holy Scripture comes from Mark 13. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 13, beginning of verse 1. This is God's word. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs? when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to this portion of scripture, let us pray for God's help. Almighty God, we are glad that you are almighty and that we read here a description of how you wield your strength. That yes, there are again descriptions of threats and yet we find the most important bits are where we should be concentrated on what the king promises to do. And so, as we consider this passage, let us not be alarmed. Help us to learn to stay awake. 
but help us to learn to stay awake knowing that we are safe in the hands of our Savior. And so we ask for encouragement as we come to this passage before us. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, When I was a kid, my my dad had this annoying answer uh, to questions about, my burning questions about if and when we were going to do something I wanted to do, right? And he would say, well, that's for me to know and you to find out. It's, it's this non-answer <laughs> that gave something but didn't clarify what would happen. Lots of things in the Christian life make us want answers with It seems particularly the case with the end of the world. Christians seem to think that having answers to our questions that we ask would solve all of our problems. And there's a a fixation upon sort of charting the historical plot line to the end. Scott Clark once told me that he would kill me if I did it, but if I ever needed money uh, just to write a book predicting the end of the world. Um, we, we flock to attempts to outline pivotal points in world history until Christ returns. Uh, our practice of that, our, that practice indicates that, that for some reason, we think that knowing the end of all things is some sort of pastoral help in our present moment. In Mark 13, Jesus didn't give the strong-arm answer like my dad's, but, but answered the disciples' question about major events, leaving nonetheless a similar effect, that even when we have the answer... We still just don't get to know some things. We're certainly not going to untangle every aspect of Mark 13. We are going to focus on its pastoral force. How should this land? And how does it help us? Mark's gospel explains who Jesus is and what his kingdom's like. And now we see that Jesus, the King, is compassionate for his disciples, toward his disciples, who wrestle with uncertainty and wrestle with confusion when their expectations are upended. We see that his kingdom is bigger than we all think it is. Even when things are not what we expect, when events don't go as we want, and when we are left without answers that we feel we need, we are safe in God's hands. Christ's teaching in Mark 13 is aimed directly at promoting faith, endurance, and obedience during times of distress and upheaval. It's not aimed at esoteric predictions. It is aimed at helping 
God's people, promoting faith and obedience during times of distress and upheaval. And so, our main point is that we are safe in God's hands even when we don't know what's going on. We are safe in God's hands even when we don't know what's going on. And our three points are going to be lead up, lordship, and looking forward. So let's think about lead up. So uh, if, if we sort of get our bearings even in where we are in this gospel, Mark 11 to 13, chapters 11 to 13, is a, is a story arc uh, about the temple beginning with, with Jesus' triumphal entry and cursing the fig tree in chapter 11 and rounding out, it was near the end of it, with, with the fig tree metaphor in chapter 13. Right? as kind of a fig bookend. In, in Mark 11, Jesus arrived at the temple, cast out corrupt infiltrators, and pronounced judgment upon what's going on in the temple. In Mark 12, Jesus had a series of confrontations in the temple, usually showing exactly why Jesus had rebuked the temple leaders and teachers. And in Mark 13 here, Jesus predicted the temple's full destruction, extending his earlier pronouncement of judgment to show the full cons- what the full consequences would be of the temple's fruitlessness. Now, although Jesus' discourse in, in Mark 13 is, is long and, and detailed, we can quickly get to its heart. Verses 1 and 2 set the scene for us. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this confirms again for us that as the kingdom of God arrives in Jesus Christ, it totally upends expectations. I mean, as the disciples marveled at the temple, which, which they expected would be the center of the Messiah's coming kingdom, Jesus flips their expectations upside down by dismissing the temple as ready for full destruction. And now, as we've seen so many times in Mark, the Old Testament adds depth to what's happening here. In Ezekiel 11, God pronounces judgment on the wicked and promises to give new hearts to his people. And in closing, after explaining all of this, particularly the pronouncement of judgment, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God left the city after pronouncing judgment and rested upon the mountain facing the temple. 
Mark 13, 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Jesus again takes on God's role from the Old Testament, having pronounced judgment on the wicked and fruitless, and goes to the mountainside. In an act of judgment, God left the temple, left the city, and went to the mountainside, and after pronouncing judgment, Jesus went to the same spot to explain what the execution of judgment would look like. And then Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. I mean, you kind of get the sense of this, right? I mean, that's a, that's a bomb drop that he just left, and they kind of walk off. And you can imagine that's all they're thinking about and kind of trying to present it. You know, we just happen to still be thinking about that. Um, could you explain that a little more? Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And the rest of Mark 13 is, is primarily Jesus' answer to that specific question. When will this thing be that you've said? When will the destruction of the temple happen and when... And what are the signs that it's going to happen? And so everything in verses 5 to 23 leads to the, to the temple's, you know, prefaces is the lead up to the temple's destruction. And then Jesus described the temple's destruction in verses 24 to 31. Note there, uh, I mean, we, we have to take Jesus seriously in verse 30. That everything Jesus had just predicted would occur within a generation. I mean, that's a, it's a matter of fact statement. And so throughout, throughout this discourse, Jesus emphasized that no matter how catastrophic things, events might be, they should not be mistaken for the true end with the end being what the disciples asked concerning the temple's destruction. The things in verses 17 to, or sorry, 7 to 13 are fairly general, even though disastrous, but verse 7 clarifies, but the end is not yet. When we pick up in verse 14, there are theories abound for the abomination of desolation. Right? In, In 40 A.D., 40 AD, the, the emperor planned to install an image of himself in the temple. At one point, Roman guards made sacrifices to their uh, insignia flags in the temple. The language itself comes from, Daniel, uh, from the book of Daniel repeatedly, especially though chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. And it's clear that whatever it is particularly... This abomination involves some sort of pagan desecration of the temple. And as verses 21 to 23 show here in Mark, this profaning of the temple would still occur before it was destroyed, as Jesus predicted. And that means that the question itself 
about the destruction of the temple is explained in verses 24 to 31. The the lead up to the temple's destruction involves lots of hardship, tragedy, and tribulation. But the point is that God still reigned on behalf of his people. One of the clearest instances, right? He cut short those days for the sake of the elect, as verses 19 and 20 show us. And we ought to know that the same is true for us today, right? Hardship, tribulation, etc. prevail, abound in the world. And God reigns and acts for the sake of his people. That has not changed. And it brings us to our second point. Lordship. Uh, (laughs) So, admittedly, it's not explicit that verses 24 to 27 uh, state that this, this is what the destruction of the temple looks like. Since, I mean, the discussion there is couched in terms of the coming of the Son of Man. And we... Uh, associate that language with Christ's return at the end of all things. And many assume that these verses describe history's end. So even though uh, the disciples here have asked a particular question about a particular event, there's an assumption that Jesus jumps. I'm going to give you an aside about something totally different. (laughs) I don't think that's the case. Particularly because Jesus said in verse 30 that even this event would occur before that present generation would die out. And so this point, what, what we want to do here in this point, right, is, is try to get at why. Why Christ used this apocalyptic language to foretell ancient events from 70 AD when Emperor Titus destroyed the temple. Why would, he, why would he talk about that event that he could just say and then somebody comes and destroys it? Why would he talk about that event in these terms? Remember that as, as Mark records this teaching, Jesus was still answering that one question. When... when Will the temple be destroyed and what are the signs that it's about to happen? And so Jesus has already outlined the signs. That's what, that's what had just happened for 5 to 23. And now he shifts to change, or he shifts gears to explain the event. And so why, why would Christ describe the temple's destruction by a Roman emperor as the coming of the Son of Man? If a a Roman army does this, why is he saying Christ himself with power and glory is coming in that event? The disciples needed the powerful point that stands behind this. And so do we. Within their perspective, within their perspective that, that God's kingdom meant 
the restoration of national Israel. Within that perspective, the temple's destruction would look like Rome just defeated God's kingdom. If you're operating on those lines, this is what the Messiah's kingdom has to be. If Rome destroys his throne, well, that looks like God just took a beating. And so given their present perspective, they would think that Rome dealt a real blow to God's efforts at salvation. And Jesus portrays the, the temple's destruction from a heavenly perspective so that all of his disciples, including us, would know that this destruction was God himself rendering judgment. God is still in control, and we are safe in his hands, even when things appear catastrophic. Rome, ultimately speaking, didn't destroy the temple. God did, for the sake of his kingdom. And we'll see how in just a moment. So this destruction wouldn't be God getting defeated. It was God bringing curses upon Israel for rejecting the Messiah. From heaven... Jesus, the Son of Man, pours out judgment on this fruitless temple like he had pronounced just before. God the Son is acting in power to advance his kingdom as it is supposed to be. Now why why do I say, right, I'm trying to think about the questions that are coming as we pick apart these verses. Why do I say this is a, a heavenly viewpoint if it says they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. And I say it's a heavenly viewpoint because this event is described in Daniel 7, particularly verses 13 and 14. I mean, at least this is, this is where Jesus took his description, right? And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented. So he's being seen, and we've got to think about where. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. Kind of like sending messengers to the ends of the earth. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we've got to take note that the Son of Man comes on clouds to the Ancient of Days. He comes to God himself whom we know even from earlier in Daniel 7. God is in heaven. And so the Son of Man comes and receives everlasting dominion. That is his kingdom. He gets it forever. The Son's kingship, to to put it sort of more, more forthrightly, the Son's kingship is coronated not on earth, but in heaven. And that's what is being described in Mark 13. 
The darkening of the sun and moon comes from Isaiah 13.10, and the stars falling comes from Isaiah 34.4, and both symbolize God's catastrophic judgment coming against the nations. And the, the shock here, as Jesus quotes those passages, as has been the case throughout his gospel, is that judgment is coming against Jerusalem. Israel is treated like Babylon because they've rejected Christ. And the result of this destruction of the temple, right? The temple gets destroyed. And the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, sends out angels to gather the elect. Now the word angel, as you may know, the word angel just means messenger. And I think that's how we should translate it here. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think this is about the heavenly beings. I think this is about messengers. Because Jesus Christ destroys the temple and sends out messengers, preachers, to the nations. It's the scattering of the church to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. After all, doesn't Daniel 7, verse 18, connect the Messiah's new kingship, or yeah, new kingship to the saints receiving the kingdom? So, what we what would you start to see here is that because I mean this this would would fall so heavy on the guys who asked this question, right? All all of their hopes for what they thought the world was going to be and what they thought restoration was going to look like just got thrown out the window. Everything that that was kind of the, the center of what made them comfortable as they looked ahead. Just got unraveled. And the pastoral force, as Jesus couches this event that was upending everything they expected, he, he puts it in terms of God acting this way so that his people know that even in the hardest even in the most unexpected moments, Christ is reigning to bless his people. Even when the thing that you thought was the end game gets taken off the board, Jesus Christ has not been defeated and is working to spread his kingdom through the power of the gospel. And so this event is simply the final point in changing history over into the new covenant, right? As Israel rejected God, God rejected Israel and so destroys the temple. This temple was destroyed and will never return because Christ has forever made the final and perfect sacrifice for sins. We don't need a new place to sacrifice animals. Jesus died. 
And that does the trick forever. As God casts off national Israel, he sends gospel messengers to the nations to build his kingdom from people in every corner of the earth. So the lordship of Christ is shown as he destroys the unfaithful and expands his kingdom by the gospel. And that brings us to our final point. Looking forward. Looking forward. Um, All this news would have been wildly unsettling to the disciples as they looked ahead in anticipation of these events that laid somewhere in their future. Many of them possibly going to see it. I mean, their generation is roughly 40 years, right? The Apostle John got to see this. The Gospel of Mark was written probably just a couple of years before this happens, less than 10. And they would be confused and rattled, wishing for for more certainty. And and so we see Jesus' pastoral care for them. And the thing is, this whole block of teaching doesn't leave us out. It, in fact, leaves us, they had a big thing before them to anticipate. Still having lots of questions, and it leaves us in the same position. Yet actually with even less information about what to expect. Because at verse 32, so 32 to 37, the topic changes to be about Christ's second coming. Now, if everything so far has been about the temple, how, how, do I, how do we know the topic changes to the second coming when it doesn't just say that? And, and I mean, usually we want to take Mark as Mark is given to us, but um, Matthew 24 and its recording of this same uh, uh, teaching gives us more information. Uh, and it records how the disciples had initially asked actually two questions. Right, tell us when these things will be and what the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So, so Mark kind of had left out one of the questions about what, what's the sign of the end of the age. Um, Matthew explicitly shows us the topic changing at the end of the discourse. Um, Mark tells us a shorter version of events, but still but still gives us the second answer, even though he didn't tell us the second question. When will the end of the age come? But the answer is, nobody knows. Signs precede the temple's destruction, but verses 33 to 34 show Christ's return is entirely unexpected. Now, Christians have long struggled with this issue at at a very practical level, even though Jesus says very plainly that no one knows when he'll return. Loads of people have tried to guess. Uh, And we seem to think that despite Jesus' clear statement that we cannot know when he'll return, there's an assumption that we can figure it out if we try really hard. 
And for whatever reason, we think that that would be useful information. But according to his humanity, at least, not even Jesus knew the timing. And there's a lot of ways in which that's a gift that we don't and we can't know. One, because you can quit trying to figure it out. It's a lot of effort spent that we don't have to spend anymore. But more than that, we have to learn to, to submit to the uncertainty of this age. This age isn't the time for knowing in full. And this isn't even the age of having in full. We have to accept that we do not have and cannot get all the answers we want. And that doesn't apply just to the end of the world. That applies in most of the the details of our own lives. The future is a mystery, and we learn as we go, and we don't know what's in store for us, and we don't understand what's going on around us. But Jesus Christ is reigning for the sake of his people. And so we're not without hope. The whole, the whole even in that uncertainty. The, the whole point of Mark 13 is to encourage us despite uncertainty. It's not to resolve uncertainty. It's to tell us who's in control as we're uncertain. I mean, think about how excited the disciples were about the temple. When Jesus told them it was going to be destroyed, he, he took away the greatest feature of cultural comfort they had. That just flipped their understanding of the world and where they were supposed to find security and feel safe. And yet, even as that happens, his aim is to help them persevere in faith faith and obedience despite that uncertainty and that discomfort. His opening words were, have, have the extreme pastoral ring that sound even into our day, see that no one leads you astray. So keep, keep your sights focused on the main thing. Not on whatever you think and feel like is unraveling society as we know it. Stay awake, watching for the Master to return. Watch for that. Don't Don't fixate on the crumbling. Think about who's coming. And we've got to be on guard because we don't know what the future holds. We have to stay awake because this age is the age for vigilance. But we don't need the answers about what will happen in life or when history will end. We don't need to know because regardless of what we don't know, 
we do know that we are safe in the hands of Christ. Looking forward, we know that whatever comes our way, Christ is reigning from heaven. We should not despair when our expectations for how God will win are not met. We should not feel unsettled when, when the thing that we thought would be the indicator of God's success does not happen. This bomb dropped about what they thought was the greatest hope and comfort. How many things are slidden away from us that we thought was going to be our safety, our hope, our comfort? And so we stand in the same spot, needing to be taught to look in the right place. Our hope for heavenly success may too easily shift into earthly comforts. And Jesus helps us when he tells us, well, they won't be here forever. Jesus is hope and comfort as he brings his kingdom from heaven through the gospel. He judges those who are opposed to him, but he is distributing his kingdom to his people through the gospel. And he, we don't need the temple again forever because he has made that once for all sacrifice to ensure that his kingdom will come. He has forgiven every sin of every person who believes in him. And he is keeping us in service to him until he returns. And so we look forward to his return. When this age to stay awake will turn into our everlasting rest with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we know uncertainty and confusion all too well. And we wish we had answers for why, for what, for when so many things would happen. And yet, you tell us that whatever is uncertain, your kingship through the Lord Jesus is certain. And we are thankful for that. And we are thankful that we can watch for his coming at the end of all things. We may not expect when it will come. We may not be able to anticipate it. And we're thankful for that. Because we can live each day as it is given to us. Faithful in what you set before us. And so as Jesus spoke to his disciples about distressing and unsettling events to to promote faith and obedience unto their comfort, we ask that you'd remind us of the same truths. Jesus Christ reigning from heaven, even in the midst of distressing and unexpected situations. We place ourselves in his hands, knowing that there is no safer place to find ourselves. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. As we 